0: Welcome to episode 30 of the Imperfect Progress Podcast. I'm your host, Ann Guzman. Super excited to reach this 30-episode milestone, and I'm really grateful for each one of you who tunes in to listen and learn about sports science, sports nutrition, and mindset. It means the world to me. Today we are diving into all things sugar, carbohydrates, insulin and other carbohydrate regulating hormones in relation to cycling and endurance exercise with Dr. Javier Gonzalez. Javier is a brilliant guest with a wealth of knowledge in the field of nutrition and metabolism. I felt really lucky to have him on today. As a professor at the University of Bath in the Department of Health, He's dedicated his career to understanding human fuel use and specifically how we obtain fuel from our diet, how we burn fuel during exercise, and also how we store fuel when we have more than we need. Dr. Gonzalez serves on the editorial board of the Journal of Physiology and is an associate editor for the International Journal of Sports, Nutrition and Exercise Metabolism. Now, here's what I love. Not only is he a consultant to sports teams and industry, but he actually is out there putting his knowledge into practice because he too loves to participate in endurance sports. And I find that sometimes that just makes the science uh, so much more relatable when I know that the scientist also really has real life context. It's not necessary, but I think it's great and it always helps. So today was fantastic because Dr. Gonzalez's ability to convey his expertise in an accessible manner, well, that just played right into the goal of my podcast, which is to translate sports science to you, the listener, so it can be put into action or simply help you understand your own body and mind better. During the conversation today, we covered a lot of interesting topics, and I'm not going to mention them all, but here are the main areas you're going to learn about. First, we dive into the basics of sugar, carbohydrates, and the roles of hormones such as insulin, glucagon, and catecholamines in regulating blood sugar, both outside of and during exercise. And Dr. Gonzalez does a great job of defining all of those as well, which really sets the stage for the conversation. He also shares his insights on how high carbohydrate intake during exercise impacts blood sugar and insulin which may surprise a lot of people versus what might be being sold to you on social media. So this is an important area to really understand. Dr. Gonzalez explains the concept of insulin sensitivity and insulin resistance, and how those play into our overall health, as well as how they can change in response to different factors, including, but not limited to endurance exercise. We also explored the differences in glycogen storage and use. So as a reminder, glycogen is carbohydrates stored in your muscles and liver. So glycogen storage and use between untrained versus trained endurance athletes. So that's important to understand depending where you fall on that spectrum. Dr. Gonzalez explained the different types of sugars, glucose, sucrose, fructose, and also how the body is able to absorb these and in what amounts. What we did after that is we made sure to connect that information back to practical food examples of carbohydrate intake, let's say on the bike, during and after training. Just to explain why the type of sugars you ingest can matter depending on the context of your training. Of course, it was important to spend some time clarifying why competitive and elite cyclists perform best on high-carbohydrate diets, while noting the limitations of relying on body fat as fuel for that competitive type of cyclist. So this is a good one. I've been waiting to find the right person for this topic for some time, and I really hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Before we jump in, if you're not signed up for my monthly newsletter about all things sports nutrition, sports science, and mindset, definitely check that out. I typically dive deeper into podcast topics and share some resources with you for anyone who wants to learn more. Also, when you subscribe, feel free to email me and let me know what type of topics you'd love to learn about in the newsletter. I write them for you, so I want to hear your feedback. So head over, join the 500 plus other members of the community by going to anneguzman.com, A-N-N-E-G-U-Z-M-A-N, Dot com right now to subscribe if you love what you see please share it with friends on social media or by email and with that let's jump inside the podcast let's add some tools to the toolbox to make 2023 your most powerful cycling season yet i'll see you inside welcome to the podcast javier great to have
1: you here thanks for inviting me on great to be here
0: Yeah, for sure. I'm excited for today's conversation because essentially, for me, I think it's super important for athletes to understand aspects of carbohydrate metabolism, as it does seem to be a topic that there's a lot of confusion around, in particular on social media, which we both spend some time on. And, you know, a lot of that confusion lies around possibly the context that the information is shared in. So, high carbohydrate diets for endurance athletes. And then, of course, the other school that often jumps in, which is like, no, no, you know, we should be on low-carbohydrate diets. So I really want to speak to some of that today and just maybe add some more clarity to differences and even the types and intensities of endurance sports and, and why high-carbohydrate high diet is the diet of choice, essentially, for an elite competitive-type cyclist or runner or triathlete. And one area that I'd love for us to dig into today is, you know, the hormone insulin. And that's something, again, that's often very misunderstood and misplaced in conversation. And I'm especially looking forward to having you discuss insulin and other hormones like glucagon, ketocolamines, and their roles in carbohydrate metabolism, but in particular, like differentiating between I'm at home watching Netflix sitting on the couch and I I eat a huge bag of popcorn versus you know I'm on the bike doing a really hard intense race and I'm eating 100 grams of carbohydrates per hour. And I think that the reason I really wanted to find an expert that could speak to this is again just some of the things I hear out on the internet around oh you can't eat that much sugar on your bike you know you're going to you're going to get a insulin spike and and then a crash and you know, I, I know that some athletes are hypoglycemic and there are strategies for uh, mitigating that that uh, are well-researched, but yeah, I would love for us to speak about these nuances. But first, um, if anyone's ever listened to the podcast before, you'll know that I think it's super important to get give a bit of a background about whatever we're talking about. So it'd be great if we could go all the way back and talk about what is sugar, And what are the key differences between the sugars that, you know, most of us hear about all the time? So you have glucose and fructose and sucrose and maltodextrin. And I think that by understanding these things and then moving into insulin, it'll just add some context and clarity through our conversation. So could we start off there and discussing sugar?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, I guess, well, carbohydrates is the kind of umbrella term under which sugars will fall under. And sugars um, are normally defined as um, very small molecules. So we think of them as either one or two molecules long, which means they they don't have to undergo very much digestion before we can absorb them into the circulation and they can provide our, our body with various fuel. Now, most carbohydrates that we eat will ultimately be broken down into glucose once they've been digested. Um, But that can happen more quickly or more slowly, depending on the type of carbohydrate they are. So if we start with glucose as that fundamental building block, um, that's a single molecule. Um, You can then have maltodextrin, which um, are slightly longer chains of glucose molecules. So if you imagine eight of those glucose molecules in a line, um, all joined up, 8 to 12 or so, and that's that would be a maltodextrin. Um, and then we've got starches, which are very long chains of glucose molecules, and they can be either in kind of a branch-like structure. So if you imagine a tree with different branches coming off, and all of the glucose molecules are in that formation... Or we can have other types of starch, um, which are kind of just long, straight chains, and they will be broken down more slowly than the branch-like structure. So even that that molecular structure will will make a difference. Um, But all of those, as I say, will be ultimately broken down into glucose, and that's what enters our our bloodstream. Then we've got another common sugar, which is fructose. Um, And actually, if we're talking about sugars in the diet rather than carbohydrates, then Fructose is normally the defining part of what would be, we, we would call a sugar. So if we think about Europe and the UK, then um, a lot of our sugar is in the form of sucrose. It's your table sugar. Whereas I guess in the US and Canada, there might be a bit more of what you might hear is termed as high fructose corn syrup. Um, they're actually quite similar. So some people sometimes think that high fructose corn syrup is more dangerous than table sugar, but they're very similar in composition. Um, Table sugar is one half glucose and one half fructose, um, whereas high fructose corn syrup is 45% glucose and 55% fructose. So there's a relatively small difference between those two in how much fructose um, relative to glucose that there is. And fructose is, is slightly different to glucose in how we metabolize it. Um, Most of the glucose that we eat will ultimately end up in our muscles, whereas a lot of the fructose is actually metabolized by the liver. And there's a lot of um, potential health effects of of fructose that differ from glucose that maybe we can discuss a little bit later on.
0: Yeah, that's super informative. That's great. I think that just gives people just a better idea about those different carbohydrates and that all carbohydrates will eventually break down into their simplest form. But you're right, I'm sure we're definitely going to come back to fructose as far as uh, liver glycogen and even discussing how that can help with uh, performance. So continuing on from there, so now we have carbohydrates, different types of sugars that they're made up of. How does insulin relate to this? And it'd be great if you could just define a few hormones, including uh, insulin, glucagon, and if you think it's going to be suitable for the conversation, catecholamines, and just their roles in regulation of blood sugar. I know that's a huge question, but I guess if we could kind of simplify it.
1: Yeah, it, it is important to define these things. So um, insulin is probably the most important for a hormone for to control our metabolism. Um, it will be secreted in response to us eating carbohydrates or proteins Um, doesn't really increase very much when we eat fat but if we eat a meal that contains some carbohydrate or some protein then we should see um, insulin being secreted by the pancreas um, one of the the key tissues that we have in digestion and what happens when we secrete insulin is it'll circulate around the, the body and it'll have various effects and um that those effects could include increasing the amount of sugar taken up from the bloodstream into the muscle it could include that increase in glucose storage within the liver and it can also suppress the amount of sugar coming out of the liver We've then got glucagon, which is a counter-regulatory hormone in relation to insulin. So in many scenarios, it has opposing effects to insulin. So whereas insulin will reduce the amount of sugar coming out of the liver, glucagon will stimulate the glucose coming out of the liver. Um, It has most effects on the liver. It doesn't have quite as many effects on carbohydrate metabolism in the muscle. And then we've got catecholamines, which are normally referred to as the kind of stress hormones. Um, These will increase in response to fasting or in particular exercise. And these can also stimulate the release of um, carbohydrate from the liver into the circulation.
0: Yeah, that's great. And uh, I'm glad you also mentioned that consuming protein also can stimulate the release of insulin because I think it's often... Um, just pointed towards carbohydrates, so it's important to know that when you're having big meals, it's not only the carbohydrate. Um, You made a few references to storing carbohydrates in the muscle and the liver, so for anyone listening, that's referred to as glycogen when we have stored carbohydrate in the muscle and liver. So if we pull a little bit more on insulin here, if you could explain insulin's role in I guess you already kind of mentioned carbohydrate regulation, but if we could touch on what is insulin resistance and what is insulin sensitivity?
1: Yeah, and this is, again, a really important point to get to up front, I think, because um, probably most commonly, people think of insulin resistance and insulin sensitivity specifically in relation to glucose and um, normally in relation to the muscle. so. To start with, insulin resistance and insulin sensitivity, at least in my mind, are are two sides of the same coin, and and they're a spectrum. And we all sit somewhere on that spectrum of um, insulin resistance at the one end and insulin sensitive at at the other end. Um, But we always need to refer to the tissue that we're interested in. So that might be the muscle, or it might be the liver, or it might be something else, and also the process. So... For example, we might be referring to um, the sensitivity of muscle to insulin's effects on sugar uptake, glucose uptake, or we might be referring to the effects of insulin or the sensitivity of insulin to liver glucose output, which could be completely different in the same individual. Someone might be very insulin sensitive to glucose uptake in their muscle, but their liver might be more insulin resistant, or in other words, less insulin sensitive. And even over our lifetime, we'll, we'll show differences in our insulin resistance and insulin sensitivity. So there are, it's quite normal, a physiological response of puberty and of pregnancy is actually to, be, to become slightly less insulin sensitive. Um, probably partly due to increases in growth hormone at that time. And it's thought that that might be beneficial p- for providing extra nutrients to the growing fetus or um, in the adolescent, the, the growing tissues in that in that individual. So that, that range of insulin sensitivity, um, as I say, we sit on a spectrum there and it will vary across our lifetime. It will vary day to day, depending on what we do. Um, the reason it, it becomes relevant for health is because probably for two reasons one is it it's one of the first um, risk factors for type 2 diabetes so one of the the problems as we progress to diabetes is that um, someone might be not very insulin sensitive and they also might not be able to secrete much insulin and there'll be a point where they lose control of their blood sugar levels Um, the other reason that insulin sensitivity is important is because if someone is insulin resistant, so they have low insulin sensitivity um, to, say, muscle glucose uptake, um, their body will respond by secreting more insulin. So it's trying to compensate um, so that we can still maintain our glucose control. So the muscle is insulin resistant. We secrete more insulin so that we increase that glucose uptake. We're now maintaining glucose control. But the problem there is that other tissues and other processes still retain the insulin sensitivity. So it might be that this process in the liver that converts carbohydrate into fat, known as lipogenesis, that retains the insulin sensitivity, but now it's being exposed to more insulin. And so now we're producing more fats than we should be producing. And that can increase cardiovascular disease risk, for example. So insulin sensitivity is is very relevant to health. It's also relevant um, to athletes. Um, exercise is a powerful tool to modulate that, as I'm, I'm sure we'll get onto later on. But ultimately, we sit on this spectrum and, and it varies quite a lot um, between individuals and can even vary day to day.
0: Yeah, that's super interesting what you're saying about, you know, how there's almost, there's a separation between insulin you know when you're talking about muscle and glycogen uptake and then the liver and having too much insulin secretion and then how that can backfire with the liver that's yeah it's fascinating I wasn't really aware of that Um, when I was pregnant I actually had uh, high blood sugar so I remember seeing my test and I looked at my doctor I was like oh you know I'm good with nutrition like I'm going I'm going to manage this (laughs) which I did as best as I could but as you were saying, like it's something that happens during pregnancy, and you know it wasn't really that I had changed anything about my nutrition. So that that's fascinating as well, and, and good for people to make sure that they pay attention to.
1: Yeah,
0: um, and,
1: and I guess another another point that might be worth uh, discussing is is what causes then insulin resistance. And mm-hmm. I know I mentioned in in pregnancy and adolescence there it's thought to be growth hormone that might cause that there. Mm. Um, But there's probably no single cause. So you often hear of um, inflammation being a cause of insulin resistance, and it might be in certain contexts. Um, But energy excess is also a cause of insulin resistance. And it seems to be that any excess can cause that. So excess carbohydrate can reduce insulin sensitivity. Excess fat can induce um, insulin resistance or reduce insulin sensitivity, Um, but so can excess protein. Um, And then even if we maintain energy balance, inactivity can also reduce insulin sensitivity. So there are some really elegant studies where people have been put in bed rest. So they're just lying in a bed for seven days. And they're carefully controlled so, so that they maintain their energy balance. So they're not in an energy excess and yet they rapidly reduce their insulin sensitivity. So clearly, uh, insulin resistance can be caused by a variety of things and it's no single cause under all contexts.
0: Yeah, that's super interesting. Thanks for mentioning that. And you you said something in there that I think is is very important. And that's because I think everyone thinks about anything that goes wrong with insulin only being related to carbohydrates, but you mentioned you know, inflammation and having excess adipose tissue and how that can lead to that chronic low-grade inflammation and then impact your insulin. And I think that's a super important point because it's not just about sugar, right? It's about all these other systems in your body and, and it is related to carrying excess body fat as well which is just from excess caloric intake or genetics or whatever the reason might be for carrying that. Now, yeah. you've mentioned that there are many things that can cause and contribute to insulin sensitivity. And I think since we're talking about sport, we'll, we'll start to veer off that way. And I'm curious how, you know, if you could speak to how exercise and also increasing muscle mass can help you to increase your insulin sensitivity.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, muscle mass per se probably does play a role because muscle is um, a huge part of our body mass, especially for athletes. And it's one of the main sites in which we dispose of the carbohydrate in a meal. So when we eat a meal, quite a lot of it will end up in our muscle. And so theoretically, then the more muscle mass we have, it's a bit like having a bigger sink to dispose of any waste. Um so you've got a, a bigger capacity to, to dispose of it. And whilst that makes theoretical sense, there is also evidence for it. Um, it's quite tricky to untangle in humans because to increase someone's muscle mass, you normally have to put them through resistance training. And so you've is it the effect of the exercise or is it the effect of the muscle mass per se? Um, but there are some rodent studies where they've genetically manipulated them to have more muscle mass despite not doing any more exercise. And you do see that they have increased insulin sensitivity there. So there are direct effects of muscle mass, um, but there are also effects of of exercise as well. And there are both acute effects and more longer-term chronic effects of exercise on on insulin sensitivity. So Um, if...
0: Oh, sorry, go ahead.
1: No, go on, sorry.
0: I was going to ask, so if an athlete goes out and does, let's just say, a two-hour bike ride, is there what is the acute difference in insulin sensitivity from the hour before the bike ride to the sixty minutes after the bike ride for example
1: yeah, so they'll show a, a rapid increase in their their whole body insulin sensitivity um, and their specifically their muscle insulin sensitivity um, that might not actually show up in terms of their glucose levels in the blood um, because You can get changes in the rates of digestion and absorption of of carbohydrates immediately after exercise. But they're more insulin sensitive because they need less insulin to control that glucose um, concentration, the the level of glucose in the blood. Um, And it it will increase quite substantially um, immediately after exercise. um, And it can persist for quite a long time as well after that bout. Um, Some of it will be partly because they've depleted... glycogen that stored carbohydrate within their muscle Um, and that results in an increase actually in the 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 amount of glucose that's taken up into the muscle even without needing insulin so an insulin independent effect Um, but it also produces this um, insulin sensitizing effect so um, in response to insulin that muscle is going to take up more glucose than um, if it hadn't exercised um, before you expose it to the insulin. Um, The the reasons are are multiple. So one is that that there's more blood flow to the muscle. And so the muscle sees more insulin. It also sees more of the glucose and can take it up more readily. Um, Another is within the muscle itself. um, There's a lot of changes within there that um, ultimately increase the number of these things known as transport proteins that go to the the muscle membrane and they allow the glucose to enter the muscle. So it's a bit like opening up the doors to enter a room or the windows as well. Um, because before we have those transporters at the cell membrane, the glucose can't really enter the muscle cell.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. This just seems like the perfect time. Um, even though I was going to ask you something else, but Since you're talking about the doors that open here, let's go back to the beginning of the podcast, and I'm glad you defined uh, glucose and and fructose and sucrose. How does it differ? What type of carbohydrate you eat at that time? um, And how does that relate to these doors that are opening?
1: Yeah, good question. It is the difference between glucose and and fructose, where at least at at the intestine, where we've eaten a meal and we're absorbing those nutrients across the intestine and to get into our bloodstream, um, there's a key difference there between glucose and fructose, where glucose will use one of these doors known as SGLT1, um, sodium-dependent glucose transporter 1, whereas fructose will use a different door, a different type of transport protein that we call GLUT5, um, the glucose luminal transporter 5. So SGLT1 for glucose and GLUT5 for fructose. And that means that under scenarios where we're looking to maximize carbohydrate availability and we need to get a lot of carbohydrate in as quickly as possible, um, combining glucose with fructose has been shown during exercise to be a, a way to achieve that, probably because of these, uh, this, uh, the advantage of using both of these doors rather than just one of the doors if it was glucose only.
0: Yeah, I love that. And I have a a visual that I've uh, made. I'll have to share it, but essentially what you're saying. So I have like, let's say six blue doors and then however many orange doors. And it's kind of like you saturated the glucose doors. And now if you want to add more, like we're going to open the fructose doors, but it is a really great way to think about it. And even, um, we might as well keep pulling on this thread. Even when you're on the bike, can you continue on here? Just speaking about how this is also important if you're doing let's say over 90 minutes of training with some high intensity why does it matter that you're using those multiple transportable carbohydrates
1: yeah it matters for at least two reasons one is the actually getting more fuel in for the muscle so if you're exercising for a prolonged period of time over that 90 minute point then there's a chance if you're pushing hard that you could be running low on your glycogen stores. So the the levels of glycogen in your liver and in your muscle could be reaching a a critically low point, certainly after two hours of of hard exercise. Um, And so one of the advantages of of using these mixtures of carbohydrates and using those multiple doors is to get more fuel in. Um, But at the same time, for the same amount of carbohydrate being ingested, you should have less Stomach discomfort, because rather than it sloshing around there, if you've saturated that uptake you're actually absorbing it, and so less of it is sitting around in the stomach and the intestine and causing uh, gastrointestinal issues so there's there's probably at least two potential benefits there
0: right, and it used to be believed that you know we would saturate our carbohydrate stores at you know sixty grams of or, or one gram per minute, 60 grams of carbs per hour with only glucose. But as you're saying now, you know, we can go higher up into the 100 plus grams per hour. What's the maximum carbohydrate intake you've seen in studies that's been well tolerated by athletes?
1: Yeah, that's right. So with glucose only, uh, the maximum rate of digestion, absorption and using that fuel is about 60 grams per hour. And that's why it used to be thought as a a limit. Um, But using this combination of glucose and fructose, that can be increased to at least 90 grams an hour. Um, In some athletes, possibly over 100 grams an hour. In individual athletes that we've tested, and I guess the, the caveat here is that When you test someone on a single occasion, there's a bit of error in the measurement as well. So um, the the true value could be slightly lower, could even be slightly higher. Um, But we have seen in some individuals, 110 grams per hour um, is what they can actually use as a fuel. Um, It might depend on a few factors such as potentially their their body size, potentially their training status, and their habitual diet as well. Um, But for the for the typical athlete, um, 90 grams an hour is is certainly achievable.
0: Yeah, and I've read, uh, I remember reading a study about a gut challenge that was done on runners for, I think it was two weeks. So if, if someone is listening to this and thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to have like gut rut or stomach problems, I recall that, you know, they gave these participants high carbohydrate, I think, you know, in the hours leading before the run for a few weeks and then their gi distress was you know significantly lower after that gut challenge so to speak um can you tell us a little bit about that
1: yeah that's right so it's thought that um by exposing our intestine to different sugars then um it adapts over time and increases the number of these transporters or doors if you like on the intestine so and and the intestine will respond quite quickly to that even within Within a week, um, at least in in rodent studies, and as you say, in human studies, over a couple of weeks, if people are exposed to higher carbohydrate intakes during their training, it seems like they can tolerate the carbohydrate better and absorb more of it and use it as a fuel. Um, the other interesting point around these combination mixtures is that some people might be fructose intolerant or be a fructose malabsorber, and they are slightly different things. So there there are some Potential problems if people lack certain enzymes in their liver to metabolize fructose, which is very rare um, more common is kind of a, a fructose malabsorption where people might have um, gut issues if they ingest fructose they they can 't absorb it very effectively but what 's interesting is that glucose seems to facilitate fructose absorption so if you take a in a particular this particular study i 'm thinking of they took a, a group of people and when they got them to ingest fructose alone, about 30% of them displayed symptoms of fructose malabsorption. But if they added glucose to that fructose and they drank it, then it went to pretty much zero prevalence. Um, so there's there's this unique combination by um, combining glucose with fructose that not only takes advantage of, of the, those transporters, but the glucose seems to facilitate fructose absorption.
0: Mm, that's super fascinating and important for anyone listening who you know, might think, oh, I can't consume fructose, but a great thing to practice during training, right? Always important to remember, we don't want to exactly. test these things out on race day, you've just invested so much time in your training and, you know, things could go wrong on, on trial 1.0. So (laughs) anyone listening, make sure you you try these things during your training. That's why we have all those opportunities to test these things out. Um, you mentioned something a moment ago about, when we are speaking about glycogen storage, you said dependent on fitness level. So let's keep going down that road. What are the differences between a trained and untrained athlete in regards to um, glycogen storage and glycogen ability to use stored glycogen?
1: Yeah, um, it's one of the biggest or the clearest differences you see in endurance trained athletes versus people who aren't endurance trained is the amount of glycogen they store in their muscle. So for any given dietary carbohydrate intake, because of course, the more carbohydrate you have in the diet, the more you might expect To have stored as muscle glycogen but if you if you put people on the same carbohydrate intake then people who are endurance trained will store more muscle glycogen than people who aren't endurance trained and that probably has health benefits but probably also has performance benefits so people who are endurance trained will then start their exercise with a higher muscle glycogen concentration It doesn't interestingly seem to affect liver glycogen concentrations quite so much. Um, It might be because of the time we've measured it and so on. So um, I would say that with some caution, but clearly muscle glycogen will increase by about 50% or maybe even more um, in people who are endurance trained versus controls. So when they start their exercise sessions, they're already starting with a bigger store of glycogen. Then if they exercise at a given intensity, They can use less glycogen because they have a greater ability to use fat as a fuel compared to people who aren't endurance trained. So there are two advantages from a glycogen perspective to being endurance trained. One is that they start with more glycogen to begin with. And second is they're going to use it more slowly. And so they won't deplete, they won't reach this critically low glycogen concentration until later on during exercise compared to someone who isn't endurance trained.
0: Oh, you're giving me so many things to ask. (laughs) This is great. No, that's super important. It makes me think about, let's say, someone who's just getting into cycling. So December, they decide, I'm literally just becoming an endurance athlete, Um, how their nutrition can change over the course of like the next six or seven months as they get more and more aerobically fit. So that's interesting to think about as well. So most people might already be trained that are listening to this, but if you're new and you're like, God, I used to, you know, need X amount and now I feel like I only need this much. I mean, that makes a lot of sense why that would change over time. Yeah. The the other thing you mentioned, um, which is a huge topic. So we might as well go down that road is that you know as you're better trained you can store more glycogen you also would use it more slowly because you have a better ability to use fat as fuel and you know this is one of the two big topics i really wanted to touch on today so we'll we'll just start with this one so you know we've essentially said without saying it um that you know the literature is clear that for a competitive you know you're training hard not three hours a week of maybe one hour of exercise, we're talking about competitive or, you know, people are training hard, endurance athletes perform better on high carbohydrate diets. And every time I put that out onto social media, I can be guaranteed that people are going to fight me back that, no, that's not true. You know, that's not true. I have this endless capacity to use fat as fuel because let's say I have 20% body fat. I can go all day on that. And what's often missed are the limitations based on the type and intensity of exercise that we're doing. And I really want to clarify this with you right now. So if you could speak to you know, why, yes, we do have that almost unlimited energy source within us in our body fat, but why does that not mean that I can go into this bike race next weekend that's going to be hard and it's going to be long? And I can just rely on my body fat stores.
1: Yeah, it's so tempting to want to be able to tap into that fat as a fuel because, as you've mentioned, it's it's almost an infinite resource, and you never practically you're never going to run out of it it, um, at least within most races. Um, And so, if you could use that fuel at higher exercise intensities where the races are won or lost, it would be great. But unfortunately as we increase exercise intensity, carbohydrates become a dominant fuel and almost an essential fuel at the very high exercise intensities. And that's that's been demonstrated multiple times. There are multiple mechanisms why why that's the case. So um, there are at least three main ways in which carbohydrates have um, a benefit over fats as a fuel at these higher exercise intensities. One is that they're simply a more rapid fuel. So they more rapidly replenish ATP. And one of the ways I, I sometimes give an analogy to, to students is we can think of carbohydrates as a petrol-based fuel versus fats as a, a diesel-based fuel. So one is more rapidly um, available than the other. Um, and the measurements in, in elite athletes um, have on a, on a fat-adapted diet, um, they can burn quite a lot of fat. So typically 1.5 grams per minute of fat, which is, a, which is a high number. But if you translate that into say power on the bike or watts, it's only about 225 watts or, or let's say 240 watts if you want to give a, give a bit of leeway there. And um, for anyone who, who knows cycling, that, that's a reasonable power for, for your weekend warrior, but it's not what Tour de France cyclists for example would would be doing at the key moments of a race where they're going to win the race um, or lose the race so at the at the moments of races where the intensity is is sufficiently high that um, it's going to win the race then carbohydrates need to be oxidized to some extent because we can only burn fat as a fuel up to a certain intensity of exercise Um, another potential advantage over carbohydrates versus fats is that they require less oxygen as a fuel compared to fats Um, the third is that glycogen itself probably acts as a signaling molecule and so when we've got more glycogen available then um, the some of the processes within the muscle that facilitate the contraction the force production by the muscle they seem to, to happen better. That process happens more effectively when there's glycogen available. And it's thought that the glycogen is acting as a signaling molecule there in addition to a fuel um, that can be rapidly used.
0: Right. Yeah, that's important. I was going to ask you about that. What are some of the other benefits of, of having muscle or liver glycogen? Are there any other additional benefits?
1: Um, so, so they would be the main ones. Um, that It's a fuel, it's um, uh, a rapidly available fuel, it's um, a more oxygen efficient fuel. And so in scenarios where oxygen availability is limiting, so if you're close to your VO2 max, your, your maximum capacity, or potentially even if you're in um, performing at high altitude, then there could be an advantage there to burning carbohydrates as a fuel. Um, and in fact, some, some native highlanders show adaptations to that where they they will preferentially burn carbohydrate over fat, probably as an advantage from that oxygen um, availability, and then the third is is that signaling molecule, so um mainly acting on um, on the ability to form a, a muscle contraction
0: right and thank you so much for going through that and I think the point you made about um, you know you're using less oxygen in the scenario on the high carbohydrate diet. I mean, that's everything because, you know, when you're in that race winning move or you're trying to bridge a gap or you're going for a finished sprint, I mean, you need to be able to hit that intensity if you want to be competitive. And now on the other hand, though, if you want to go out and ride for 13 hours at a lower intensity, I mean, it's a bit of a different story. So can you can you speak to that scenario?
1: Yeah, that that's true. So that's where fat um, at these low to moderate exercise intensities, can can support um, the metabolic demands, and um, it's a very different scenario. If if you're not looking to, if you're not competing on that day, if it's just a relatively easy ride, um, and you haven't got a race the next day or anything else, there's no real reason to necessarily consume carbohydrates, certainly in large amounts, on the bike. You could get away with potentially no food at all if it was. Um, a ride of a certain duration or um, the the type of nutrients you're ingesting probably don't matter. It's more a case of um, what you prefer to just eat, just to feel comfortable um, for that long ride.
0: So what if we take someone who's an ultra runner? So now it is still a competition, but they're running a hundred miles.
1: Yeah, it, it will depend on the level of the athlete. So some of these athletes, even with ultra endurance events, can push fairly hard so that the exercise intensity is is high, and there would be some requirement for carbohydrates there, particularly on say uphill sections. Um, but if it's um, someone who's not at the, the that top end of the race, maybe they're at a more moderate intensity. Um, they they possibly could get by on on burning fat as a fuel for the majority of the race, and um, then the decisions more come down to. What they can tolerate effectively on their gut. So, obviously, running is a, a sport where it's particularly demanding on the gut, and uh, the decision on what to eat there is probably more driven by what is comfortable rather than what is providing a specific source of energy.
0: Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense, and I've seen a lot more runners turning to higher higher carbohydrate drinks. And I would say that you know, ten years ago. You would hear that you know your your carbohydrate drink shouldn't be too high in carbohydrate, and that was from a perspective of hydration and impeding hydration. But I've seen some research on some of the newer products, let's say like Morton, where it seems like even though they do have a higher higher carbohydrate uh, percentage, that they don't seem to be impeding hydration. So where is that fine line of how much carbohydrate can you put in your sports drink before you're starting to interrupt with your hydration?
1: Yeah, it's, it's a good question because a lot of the older literature is based on the that glucose-only mm-hmm. form of carbohydrate. And um, as you increase the, the concentration of carbohydrate in a drink, you increase what's known as the osmolality, or if you like, simply the that concentration of the drink. So more molecules within a given volume of fluid and at a certain point, um, that's going to slow down the uh, the fluid that we absorb across the intestine because it's going against a gradient. If you like, it's, it's trying to work uphill rather than downhill. Um, but what's interesting before we get onto the Morton is is just adding the glucose fructose mixtures because the carbohydrates are being absorbed more quickly across the intestine. They can draw water across with them, and so it has been shown, with all else being equal, you could. If you have a glucose mixture only versus a glucose fructose mixture, they could both be quite high in osmolality, and so you would think they wouldn't be very effective for hydration. But the glucose fructose mixture can perform fairly well in terms of fluid absorption compared to glucose only. Um, and then the second level is relatively recently, um, yeah, some, some companies have produced products that they that include a couple of different ingredients. So sometimes it contains pectin, which is a fruit fiber. Sometimes it contains sodium alginate, which is um, an ingredient found in seaweed. And if you add those mi- ingredients to mixtures, and certainly when they hit the acidity of the stomach, they can form these hydrogels, these gel-like structures. And that changes then um, the, the structure, that environment in the stomach. And might facilitate um, greater fluid absorption.
0: Interesting. Now, with these uh, studies on these products, with these hydrogels, um, I haven't seen anything to show that they actually improve performance, however. Have you?
1: Um, there is one study. It didn't use the product that's commercially available. Um, they would kind of made their home mix, um, but with pectin and alginate, um, there were were some differences in the carbohydrate type. So they used glucose rather than maltodextrin. Um, And they do report an improvement in both carbohydrate absorption and performance. Um, Mm. When we've done studies on the commercial products, we didn't see an effect on performance, but there's a number of differences between the studies such as We used a relatively low or a moderate exercise intensity. They used a higher exercise intensity. Um, Differences in in rates of carbohydrate absorption and that kind of thing mean that at the moment, it's a little bit unclear. Um, And one of the problems with kind of metabolic research is to perform our measurements accurately, we really have to study people in steady state, continuous exercise and at moderate intensity. Whereas, as we've already discussed earlier on, a lot of races and certainly the key moments of a race happen at high exercise intensity. And it's very difficult to measure metabolism accurately at those high exercise intensities. So mm-hmm. yeah, there's a little bit of unknown in that area. Um, as you say, there's, I'd say most studies don't show a benefit on performance so far, but there is one out there that does. And so yeah, I'm, I'm certainly open-minded.
0: Mm -hmm. No, that's good to know. You might want to package that product (laughs) (laughs) just in case. Um, Yeah, little nuances there. Good. Great to see some other new research. Now, I want to come out of the weeds of, I guess, carbohydrates and all the different types of sugars and speak about the other thing I really wanted to discuss today, which is What is the difference between how we regulate or metabolize carbohydrates in scenarios such as I had mentioned earlier, earlier, let's say I'm sitting at home, I'm just eating popcorn on the couch and drinking orange juice, I'm not working out, um, I'm just watching something for hours, as opposed to I'm in the middle of a hard training session with high-intensity and the reason I really want to speak about this comes back to that whole notion of I don't want to eat those carbohydrates on the bike, like I'm going to spike and then I'm going to crash and I'm not going to be able to finish my ride. So it would be great if you could differentiate between those. I know that at different times of the day we might have different insulin sensitivity and whatnot, but if we could just separate those two scenarios and if you could explain what the differences are as far as how insulin comes into the picture.
1: Yeah, I guess the the biggest difference to start with is. The glucose flux, which what I mean by that is um, whenever we measure the concentration or the level of something in the blood, it's a fixed time point. Um, and it gives us a little window into what's happening at, at that time point. Whereas the metabolism is really in constant turnover. So we've constantly got glucose entering the bloodstream and we've constantly got it exiting the bloodstream. And even if you take a scenario of rest versus fairly light intensity exercise, you can easily double that rate of blood glucose turnover. So you've increased the rate at which the glucose is entering the bloodstream and increasing the rate at which it's exiting the bloodstream. And so now if you layer on top eating some carbohydrates, well, when you eat carbohydrate, you are clearly increasing glucose Appearance from the glucose that you've eaten. Um, That will produce an insulin response and you'll start to shut off the amount of glucose coming out of the liver. That insulin will also increase the amount of glucose being taken up by the muscle to dispose of the glucose that you've eaten in the meal. So you'll get a small rise in glucose. um, In someone who's healthy, that might peak at about 30 within 60 minutes and it will come back down again by two hours. And it'll be the insulin that that really drives that. During exercise, you've got this higher flux. You've already got muscle taking up lots of glucose, even with low insulin concentrations, because the exercise itself is stimulating that process. If you then ingest carbohydrate, you probably get a smaller rise in, in the glucose concentration in the blood because your rate of flux is so much faster. And you won't get as big a rise in insulin because you've got that exercise stimulus for muscle glucose uptake.
0: Right, so you have the smaller rise because you're using it. And then can you speak to how uh, ketocolamines jump into the picture and help you to keep up with you know, the glucose that you need to do that high intensity exercise?
1: Yeah, so if, if in a scenario where you're not ingesting carbohydrate and you exercise, clearly your muscle is using glucose. And if you're not eating glucose, it's going to have to come from somewhere. And that's coming from the liver. So the liver is breaking down its store of glycogen. And it's also producing glucose from other things such as amino acids or proteins, if you like, and and some other things. Um, And that process is accelerated um, by the stress hormones, these catecholamines. So they will increase the amount of glucose that the liver puts out and you see that particularly if you do a a hard sprint and then stop exercise immediately you might see a spike in your blood glucose level partly because of that catecholamine that stress hormone response it could also be a a neural response as well so the brain signaling to the liver ultimately the liver is putting out a lot of glucose Um, normally the muscle would be taking it up during exercise but as I say, if you do a sprint and then stop exercise, the muscle isn't using it so um, quickly, the liver still puts it out. And you see this small spike is a, it's a normal response um, that you can see in that scenario.
0: Yeah, that's super interesting. Um, oh, she's going to say something and I lost it in my mind. <laughs> Anyhow, oh, I know what it was. So this makes me think about a study that I'm pretty sure it was your group that did, where you were looking at ingestion of was it 25 50 and 75 grams of carbohydrates and then measuring the blood sugar um during exercise and there wasn't that much difference so can you speak to that since it kind of relates to this
1: yeah sure i yeah i think i, know, I think the study you're referring to is actually by an Australian group um oh, okay. yeah, re- really nice study um because they used this method that that we do use They're using tracers to basically understand what's happening to the glucose that you, you eat in a meal. And, and you're right, they fed 25 grams, 50 grams, or 75 grams, measured the blood glucose response, um, and also measured actually what's happening to the glucose that's ingested and the glucose that's coming from the liver and everything else. And what you might intuitively think is that if you have 75 grams of carbohydrate you would see a bigger blood glucose concentration, a bigger rise in the blood glucose concentration compared to 25 grams. And yet they see no difference whatsoever. Um, And that's mainly because they saw a bigger insulin response to the 75 grams of glucose versus the 25 grams. And that meant that the muscle was taking up more glucose out of the circulation. So we've got higher glucose turnover or glucose flux in the 75 gram condition compared to the 25 gram condition, but the glucose concentrations or levels were pretty much the same.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. And I think that's that's a big part of the the point that I wanted to, to bring across is just that just because we're eating a lot of carbohydrates, like on the bike at high intensity, we're also using them, right? So it's not like we're just sitting there yeah. and we just have this dump of sugar. I mean, if you are doing high intensity training, you're using that at a, a really fast rate and even if you even have time to store it and depending just how hard and long you're exercising
1: exactly but- in, in some of the studies we've, we've done for example and many others have as well um we might be feeding people over 100 grams of of carbohydrate or sugars per hour and yet their blood glucose concentration will be the same as it was in the fasted state because it's just going in and out so quickly and being taken up by the muscle and being used as a fuel.
0: Yeah, so that makes a lot of th- sense. Thanks for explaining that. Um I wanted to just touch on Oh, sorry, you just made me think about something. Yeah, if you could speak to the differences in glycogen storage like within that I know we kind of talked about recovery, but if someone really wants to maximize their post-workout recovery. Now, if you're resting for 2 days, and you're eating a healthy diet, you're going to restore your glycogen over 48 hours. But if you're in a stage race and you are maybe doing, you know, a time trial in the morning, a crit in the afternoon, the next day is a road race, and you really want to, you know, get on top of your glycogen replenishment, what have you seen in the research as far as the best types of uh, carbohydrates to replenish that?
1: Yeah, you, and you're right. I think this is most relevant to people either training multiple times per day or competing either multiple times per day or or day in, day out on these stage races, um, where you want to maximize the rate at which you're replenishing these glycogen stores. Um, One of the things to consider is just the total amount of carbohydrate, um, particularly in the first four hours after the first bout of exercise. So you really want to focus on getting carbohydrate in pretty frequently. So probably every 30 minutes, uh, a bolus. Um, The typical recommendations are about or at least one gram of carbohydrate per kilogram of body weight per hour for those first four hours. Um, And if we're thinking of muscle glycogen, then the type of carbohydrate doesn't seem to matter too much. Um, But where it matters is for liver glycogen recovery. And Of course, we're interested in both muscle and liver glycogen. So, if you want to maximize the total glycogen we've got stored, then the liver is important for that. And that's where a few studies now have shown that if you combine glucose fructose mixtures compared to glucose only, then you can really rapidly increase liver glycogen resynthesis. You get about double the rate of liver glycogen resynthesis when it's a glucose fructose mixture compared to glucose only. Even though the total amount of carbohydrate is the same, now the form in which that comes um, probably doesn't matter too much, so you could be using fruits like banana smoothies, that kind of thing honey um, they're all good sources of fructose in the studies that have been done, just because they're scientific studies and they we like to control everything very very precisely they're normally pure forms of powdered fructose or sucrose or other forms of, of sugar in that way. But you can probably achieve it with, with food sources.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a great point because, you know, you might listen to a podcast like this and think, oh gosh, how am I going to know if I eat whole foods, how much glucose, fructose, sucrose is in my whole food versus if I just go and eat gels that, that tell me what's in it?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a good point. And that's where I think education is key. Um, as a, as a broad rule of thumb, um, most, um, most sources of sugars that you would buy or, um, a lot of fruits are about a 50-50 ratio. They're not far off a, a 50-50 ratio of glucose to fructose. So, um if you know the total amount of sugar within a product, um because actually on the label it won't say how much fructose is in it, at least in Europe. I'm I'm not sure about the US um and Canada mm-hmm. but um yeah, it won't say how much fructose is in it, but in most products you can kind of assume um when it says of which sugars, about 50% of that is going to be fructose.
0: Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I was I was just uh, wrote something online the other day, and I was just giving examples of thirty grams of protein. So, if people are a uh, carbohydrate, sorry. So, if people are listening, you know, we've mentioned a hundred grams, we've mentioned sixty grams. So, an example of thirty grams—you know—a lot of gels are thirty grams, or a medium-sized banana is around twenty-five grams of carbohydrates, and one that's really um, calorically dense, and not that you'd want to eat many of these on the bike and again you would want to practice this in, in training are medjool dates. So two medjool dates has 36 grams of carbs. So that's a really like condensed source of carbohydrates if you want to get them from Whole Foods. But then you have you know, the concern that some people don't do very well with fiber on the bike. So lots of things that we could eat. Potatoes are my favorite. What do you like to eat on the bike?
1: Uh I go for bananas as my my go-to. Yeah.
0: Nice. Yeah. I'm a big fan of potatoes because they don't melt and they don't freeze. And when I was a bit more hardcore, um, (laughs) if I'd ride like in really cold Canadian temperatures, they were great. And then same thing in the summer when a lot of things might melt. Um, They're just perfect all around. So there are a lot of foods out there that everyone can choose from. I know that some sports products, you know, it can add up. Um, it can be expensive. So I know when I've seen a lot of uh Europeans eating just white bread with jam, like sandwiches just cut up into their pockets. So, or rice cakes, which are popular for some people as well. You can buy a giant bag of white rice for, you know, pretty economical. Um, so we've talked a lot about all things carbohydrate, insulin, and on the bike, off the bike. Is there anything that you would love to speak about before we start to wrap up that maybe we haven't touched on and you think is important?
1: Um, I guess um, I had meant to mention earlier on that um, maybe it's worth, when we're thinking about the potential advantages of carbohydrate over fat as a fuel under these specific scenarios, that sometimes putting numbers on things is helpful as a, a little reminder of, is this actually a, a meaningful difference? And um, if we think about the, the oxygen efficiency of carbohydrate versus fat, then we can put numbers on that, at least from a biochemical perspective. And also there are measurements that we can do on people. The number does vary slightly depending on the types of fats we're burning as a fuel or whether we're burning glucose versus glycogen, that kind of thing. But Broadly speaking, if um, people are interested, on average, that difference is about 3%. So you need 3% more oxygen for the same amount of energy to be liberated when it's fat being burned compared to carbohydrate being burned. And so that that might help put context again in the sense that probably doesn't matter too much for someone who's just casually jogging along, but that 3% probably does make a difference to people at that um pointy end of of a bike race um, looking to really be competitive.
0: Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up the context again, because I would hate for someone to listen to this podcast who is, let's say, running low to moderate aerobic, maybe one hour, three times a week, and then think they need to go and consume a um, hundred grams of carbohydrates per hour, so that 's definitely not the take home message um, you know that 's if you 're training hard you 're racing hard you 're putting in a lot of hours, and same with that recovery you know if you need to recover for for something that day or the next morning, but if you 're taking it easy for two days, like a good wholesome diet you 're probably going to recover just fine. Would you agree with that
1: yeah, absolutely yeah
0: um okay that 's great. This has been super informative and my last question, which I always ask guests is about uh, imperfect progress. And I feel like we've talked about that a bit with some of the studies that, uh, you know, maybe the, you know, the answers aren't super clear. And that's often the fact with a lot of science. But I have to say, when it comes to high carbohydrates and performance, it's probably one of the areas where the data are pretty clear that it improves performance. But there's so much other research that Is always, you know, in flux, since that was one of your words for the day, but (laughs) imperfect. And so we might learn a little bit and then we might learn something else. And 10 years from now, we might go, oh, yeah, we used to think that, but now we know this. So science is imperfect. Life is imperfect. Um, You know, I'm a parent now. So, (laughs) you know, I'm just seeing a lot of struggle with perfection in in my 6-year-old she wants to write a letter and if the letter r doesn't look perfect like that's so frustrating and when you're that age it's really hard to deal with all those emotions but you know we're mature adults now so we have some strategies in place for when things do not go as planned so as a scientist as an athlete uh, just generally in life i always like to ask my guests like how do you navigate through times of imperfect progress when things just don't go the way you envision them to go?
1: Yeah, I'll probably say a couple of things on this. So one is, um, and I've stolen this phrase from Julia Galef, who's written a great book called The Scout Mindset. And um, she proposes that we should hold our identity loosely. Um, Mm -hmm. And the way I think that's relevant to, to the question you ask is that if you identify really strongly as the champion athlete or the the grant winning scientist then then there are going to be times where you don't win um, and so at those times your your core identity is then pretty unstable so rather than holding that identity tightly hold, have an identity because it's an important it's important to have an identity but but hold it loosely um, and perhaps think of. The processes being your identity, the way you you act or behave, rather than the outcome, uh, as your identity. Um, and uh, another point I'd probably make is um, I've certainly found it useful to have multiple interests. So, with my research, I try to have multiple lines. Um, so, whilst carbohydrate fat metabolism is is a broad interest, I'll have multiple lines of research going on at one time, and that means that if one isn't going so well. I can focus on on the other one that hopefully is going better, and or well, that might be a case of you have your work and your um, sport, and sometimes work m- might be going better than your sport, and you can focus on, or, or at least may- maybe not spending more time on it, but at least mentally thinking about the successes you've had in some areas of your, of your life um, when the other areas might not be going so well, and hopefully over time um, they might balance out and, and change over. And just in the background of all of that, I. I Completely agree that um kind of we we shouldn't beat ourselves up, but we should still strive for perfection. Uh, I think it's good to have that as, as a as a driving force, but be accepting of the imperfect, so I guess mm-hmm. the the other phrase that I sometimes used is don't let the great be the enemy of the good.
0: oh, I like that, yeah, that's great, and I agree I mean it's all about striving to to do it the best that you can, but yeah, you make a great point about having a lot of interests. And I did a, a podcast recently with a uh, professional cyclist, Ruth Winder. And, you know, we talked about what can happen as a professional athlete in that you're all in hundred percent. There is no other pie piece. Mm-hmm. It's just cycling. That's who you are. It's what you do and how problematic that can be. Yeah. Right. Because when you are injured or, you know, something doesn't go your way, it's, it's you it's all of you. And then it's like, what's wrong with me versus mm-hmm. you, maybe you can shift to, you know, now you're injured and you're going to spend some time on another hobby and other things as, as you get back to cycling. So it's a good, it's a good example for sport and just for life in general, as you say, it's good to be able to shift your focus and not put all of your eggs of your identity into one basket because we are all so many things, right? We can't, we can't just be one thing. Yeah, I love that. Great answer. I love the quote that you started with as well. i have to to look her up in that book up um this has been fantastic i really appreciate your time i would love to let people know where they could learn more from you online
1: uh yes so i'm on twitter Um, my handle is at gonzalez um that's with a z underscore jt um and yeah the university of bath is is where i work um so there's a web page there with um the research that we do um i'm part of the center for nutrition exercise and metabolism here
0: That's amazing. Well, thank you so much. It's been super informative and uh, we'll definitely be following you in your research.
1: Thank you. Yeah, it was great to chat.
0: Absolutely. Take care. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. I loved that conversation with Dr. Gonzalez and learned a few things about insulin sensitivity that I did not know, which is always so exciting for me. And I think it's important for athletes to understand these hormones that come into play that allow us to keep up with the energy demands of competitive or elite level cycling. It's important to understand the differences between our body's carbohydrate regulation when we're doing intense exercise or endurance sports as compared to being at rest or doing low intensity exercise. No, we don't all need to know the little intricacies of all the hormones and whatnot, but understanding how fuel gets used in your body, the types of fuels that are optimal to use depending on how hard and long you are cycling or running or doing whatever endurance sport you might be doing, that's important from a practical fueling perspective. So that was an episode that probably needed a pen and paper to take notes. But remember, you can always voice to text on your phone and take advantage of technology when listening to a podcast like this. So once again, that was episode 30, which is pretty cool for me. I've really enjoyed creating this podcast to help translate sports science to a broader audience. And I appreciate every one of you who listens, rates, shares, and sends me comments about how these podcasts have helped you that means the world to me. So I really appreciate that. If you want to support me in this podcast, which I would appreciate, please do take one minute and head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen and give it a five-star rating if you like it. It really helps to get the podcast to reach a bigger audience. And that helps me to get proven science out there and essentially crowd out the endless pseudoscience that we see on social media. If you're on Apple, just scroll down to the bottom of the page. You'll see the five stars. Leave me a comment. What did you learn? What did you like about it? And that way other people will see your comment about what you thought about the podcast or even a specific episode. All right. So until next time, remember, progress is imperfect. What's important is that we keep moving in the right direction and pivoting when we need to pivot it's so key that we surround ourselves with people who support us in our dreams even if they sound crazy i think it's so important to have crazy dreams and we've got to keep moving our bodies because we know that exercise is one of the most powerful things we can do for our bodies and our minds and remember nothing is permanent so if you're struggling things will change believe it surround yourself with believers and just keep moving. Thanks for being here. I appreciate you and I will see you next time. Take care.